Today, as we look at the table, I want to look at three things. The, the, the divinity of Jesus, the wrath of Jesus. I know that's a strong word. And for many, we're going to feel that's an archaic word. We should not be using that word when we talk about church and things like that. But the word does use this word wrath. It's, it's in Hebrew, it's in Greek. Um, so we're looking at the divinity of Jesus, the wrath of Jesus. We're looking at the heart of Jesus. And so Jesus is coming, he's coming closer to the temple complex. And as he's coming closer, the noise starts rising up. Arguments between people who have come from afar and the money, the, the, the table, the tables where money exchanged were, happen, were happening. Arguments were growing. It's like big discussions happening, offerings, the doves, the lambs, all the, 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 the animals that were going to be given to offering were being, were being at this place, and there's all sorts of noise. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's these people who are inspecting animals to see if, they, if they're without blemish or not. And within the whole, this whole context is happening at, at, at this court called the Gentile court. And this place has been designed, specifically designed, to be a place of prayer. And this is the context in which Jesus walks in and all this noise, everything, all these things are happening. But, but, but what, what else is happening is that there, there's extortion happening for gain. And there's a one family that's in, in, the, in, in, the, in the lineage of the priests that is, one has kind of the, the monopoly of all this business that's happening and is gaining from this. And there's all this extortion, all this gaining, and the poor and the widow are struggling with all the tax payment, all these things. And, and suddenly, Jesus shows up, and when he shows up, he's right there. John tells us in, verse, in chapter 2, verse, 16, verse 15, he tells us that Jesus made a whip. A whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove them out. The sheep, the cattle scattered the money of the changers, coins, all over the floor, turned over all their tables. He turned on all the tables. Now, this is, this is not a picture of Jesus that we're used to. Because usually when we speak about Jesus, we speak about tenderness, tenderness, love, compassion, meeting people where they are, beating with the, meeting, being with the poor, being with the widow, being with the, with the one with leprosy. But here, John shows Jesus in a different mode. And it's not something, it's something that we struggle with. Jesus shows up, finds some rope, makes a whip. Starts turning tables, taking away cattle, taking away doves. I mean, throwing the coins to the floor, overturning tables. And yet, this is not the, the, the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story happens differently. The beginning of the story is very interesting. And John, the beginning of the story, by the way, happens with the wedding at Cana. And, and right there in, in verse 19, in, in, in John chapter 2, verse 19, it reads, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what is, what is Jesus saying? You see, chapter 2 of John starts with, starts with the wine that is missing. 
And in and, and a, and a lot of people, because John doesn't speak about the Lord's Supper, he focuses more on the, the ritual of humility, the washing of the feet. A lot of scholars believe that encrypted, encrypted in the, this chapter, second chapter is the Lord's Supper, because there's the wine, and then there's the story of the cleansing of the temple, and then there's this response that we read, and we put up this response again, destroy this temple, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking not about the temple. He's speaking about his body. And so it's the broken bread. And so that's how John puts this, con this, this story of the cleansing of the temple in context in this moment. But then Mark, Mark does it very differently. Mark, he accentuates on something differently. Mark talks about this fig tree that's right there that has a lot of leaves. And Jesus is hungry, and he goes to it, and it's not in season. But Jesus is looking for fruit, but it's not in season for fruit, and it doesn't have fruit. Jesus then curses this fig tree. And this is what Jesus says. He says, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him said it. And so this fig tree is completely cursed. And then after this comes the cleansing of the, of the temple. And then after the cleansing of the temple, it comes back to the story. And when the disciples pass by, they see the fig tree and it's completely withered. It's dried up. John, I mean, Matthew, he introduces it differently. And Matthew he introduces this story to the entrance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. When he comes into Jerusalem, he comes as a king. And in 21.9, Matthew says, Praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And so that's how Matthew introduces the story of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus walks in as king. But then we have here Luke. And Luke in, introduces the story with, with Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king, but then he adds something else. He adds Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And what we find is, in, in 1942, it says, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. How I wish. He's crying for Jerusalem, for his people. And this is the way that this story gets introduced to every angle of the gospel. It's a difficult story. Before, before the, moment, the moment of chaos, when Jesus walks in and creates chaos, Jesus and John is wine, is the wine and the broken bread. And, 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 and Mark, Jesus is the judge. And Matthew, Jesus, is the king. And, and, and Luke, Jesus, is the God who weeps over his people. And so what I need you to understand, I need you to understand this. Before we can, we can understand the cleansing of the, uh, the, the uh, temple, before we understand that Jesus grabs a whip, he, he makes a whip and does the chaos and creates the chaos that he creates at the temple. Before he does that, you need to understand that Jesus here shows his majesty, his divinity shows up. And for many Christians, for many Christians, they want to see the authority of Jesus. They want to see the majesty of Jesus. They want, to, they want to see the power of Jesus. But for other Christians, 
We prefer the tenderness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. But what you and I need to understand is that Jesus is both. And not, we're, not, we're not very comfortable with both. Jesus is both majestic, he's authoritative, he is power, but he's also tender, he's compassionate, he's graceful, he's loving. And we need both. We need his kingship as we need his compassion. We need his love as we need his authority. We need his tenderness as we need his judgment. We need both ends. And so it, it, for, for Christianity today, especially in these days, it's very difficult to them to see Jesus with the whip. But Jesus, according to Timothy Keller, Jesus is Lord of the wine and he's Lord of the whip. He's both ends. And here's the thing is that we, we, we have this temptation of hum, as human beings of, of molding Jesus to the God that we like and the God that we can deal with. And so we, we, we mold Jesus to the God that we want and we make it into the God that we want. We want Jesus to be constantly loving, constantly compassion, and constantly always with there. And others want Jesus to be exacting, judge constantly, and to the point where nobody wants to come to church where they are. But what we need to understand is that Jesus is divine. And that he is both the Lord of the wine and the Lord of the whip. And that both we need. Notice what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 tells us. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 it says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges, that word involves a whip, by the way, every son whom he receives. Paul speaking here, if you believe that Paul wrote this book, Paul speaking here, is trying to share, hey, God, when he deals with his children, when he deals with his people, he does discipline them, but he doesn't discipline them because he doesn't love them. It's because he considers them their ch his children. So God is, Jesus is both. He's Lord of the whips, and he's Lord of the wine. And we need to understand that. Uh, despite your preferences, you need to understand, sometimes what we do is we say, we, we like this God, and then we add a few things that we like of the true God to kind of create our own God so we can follow that God. And everybody who, anybody who messes with that God, we then are in odds with. But here is a compassionate story, because you're going to find out that this is a compassionate story of God. You're going to find out the heart of Jesus right in this story. Here, Jesus presents himself in full divinity. And it's a serious moment. He comes into a temple that is selling, rattling, doing types of business, all sorts of things. And he comes in, and, and, and one author puts it this way. He didn't even need the whip. When his divinity ushered out of his, light, out of his, his eyes, out of his presence, it just, it just showed up and it inundated the place. People started running away. Jesus is Jesus. And, 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 you need, and you and I need to understand, as disciples, as followers of Christ, we need, you and I need to understand. And I know this sounds kind of harsh, 
But you need to understand, Jesus, it, it's all of Jesus or it's nothing. It's not parts of Jesus that you can take and then try to get the whole. No, it's all or nothing. Jesus is inviting you to completely surrender because Jesus gave his all. He, the God of heaven gives his son. He gives his all. And this all, he dies for you completely. It's all. And so he asks you for all in return. It's all or nothing. Yes, Jesus understands struggle. Yes, Jesus understands that we fall. Yes, Jesus understands when, we, when we're in doubt. And so that's all part of the, the equation right here. But Jesus is asking for all. You need to understand that. It's all. And we struggle with giving him all. We do struggle a lot with giving him all. But here is the Lord, and he is Jesus, and Jesus is Jesus. Now, we need to understand something, that because his divinity is showing up, of course the wrath shows up through his divinity. And I, can, I cannot imagine that moment Jesus shows up, he grabs, he does the whip, and he just shows up, he stands the first glance, and people become aware of his divinity, and they're, they're about to run one side or another, so they're going from one side to another. Jesus shows up right there. And I love this because in the Old Testament, this wrath in the Old Testament, this anger of Jesus in the Old Testament is known as the wrath of God. And so for those... For those who ask the question, is, is Jesus the same God in the Old Testament, New Testament? Here it is. Because this type of thing happens in the Old Testament. You have, if you have read the Old Testament, you've seen once in a while, God shows up his hand and he brings up his whip. Right? Here we see Jesus. He's the same God in the Old and the New. But what I love about this is, you know, and, and this is the question I want to ask you. Why does Jesus overturn the tables? Why does he overturn the tables? So we talked about the divinity of God. He's both in majestic, authoritative, tender, compassion, but now we see his wrath. And I love, I love how the Gospels put this together. So, you know, the Gospels as a whole give us an answer. And so everybody records according to their understanding, what they remember. And I love what Matthew, Matthew puts it this way. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, it says, He said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. That's how Matthew places it. When we go to Mark, Mark adds something to it. He says, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, may, you, you, you have made it a robber's den. Then we go to Luke, and Luke kind of, kind of repeats what Matthew says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And then we go to John, and right there John says, take these things away you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. Interesting, the word business is there, but it's, the word is trade. Interesting. So from each, to understand the story, we had to look at the whole story from each one of the, the Gospels. And this is a very difficult story because you can say Jesus is being revolutionary. Uh, Jesus has an agenda. Jesus is doing this, you know. But what, what's being accentuated here is that there is this place, the temple. And in the temple, there's this court. It's the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is having issue with what's happening right there at the court of the Gentiles. And he's saying, my house is a house of prayer. 
and you should not make it a den of robbers. Now, I want to I focus on Mark specifically. Mark, Mark brings two points, and there's a lot of things that we can bring out of here, but I want to just focus on two points. Number one, Mark says, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. And I want you to leave that verse right there. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In, in, in the New Testament, there's two words for the temple. There's Yerong, which is the temple complex. And the temple complex had a Gentile court, and right next to the Gentile court, there was a woman's court where they would bring offerings once in a while. Then you had the Israelites congregation court where they would come and hand over their offerings to the priests. And then you had the priest court. And within the priest court, there was a, a, a temple. And this temple was called the Naos because it was the temple per se. Is what we, where we find the holy in the most holy place. Right? And so we have two, these two terminologies, you see? And, but, but the whole temple complex was was dedicated as a sacred place for prayer and right here in the gentile court is where all the action is taking place and this gentile court there was the money exchangers the tables where they're exchanging money because you had to pay some tax temples and and if you were bringing money from because you came from afar and you were bringing that money the money the temple had their own type of currency so you would have to exchange the money that you brought for the for the currency of the temple and they would charge over twice for the exchange plus buying the animals the offerings because even if I brought an animal to the temple and it was without blemish, which was the requirements for offering, it was without blemish, the inspector of animals could say, that's no good, you need to buy. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, even though it's without blemish, this is no good, you have to buy an animal temple. So they were, they were gaining so much. And you know how many people came to this, to this Passover time? Because it was the time of Passover. It is estimated between 1.5 to 2 million people would come to the temple at that time. Do you know how much money they were making? And so the poor, the widow, the orphan, the Gentile, they were having problems. And so I just want you to imagine this. Imagine a Gentile coming from afar, a pilgrim coming from afar. He comes to worship God because he has found that he, he believes as Jesus, as, as, I mean, the God of Israel is the true God. And so he's, he's coming to worship with his lamb. His, his, he has a lamb, let's say, and he's bringing his unblemished. And he comes to the court and, he's in, in, and he goes to the table, exchanges, and does exchange, pays the tax, and now he has to change his money, has to pay over charge, and then he, then he comes to inspection and they reject his animal, and now he has to buy another animal. And he's going through the heartache of not, point, not you know, of putting two to three days his wages, because that's much how it costs. A days to two days wages. And so he's thinking financially, economically, how can he afford this? But he's trying to figure it out. He gets it figured out. And now he's going to go and pray. He's going to do the process. But while the only place he can be at the temple complex is at the court of Gentiles. And there's a sign, there's a wall that has a sign that says, if Gentiles pass from this point, the penalty is death. 
So the only place he has to worship, to go in, into intimacy with God, is right there, the Gentile court. So he's getting ready to worship, but all he hears is the rattling of coins. He hear, hears people bargaining. He hears people angry, mad, which reminds of his anger. And so he gets completely interrupted. It becomes, the whole system becomes a barrier for those who are seeking intimacy. And they're seeking God's grace, God's redemption, God's forgiveness. It becomes a total barrier. You, see, you understand what's going on here? It becomes a barrier. You see, the tables... In the Bible, the tables are a sample of openness, of accessibility, of, of, of intimacy, of, of a, a place where, where, of inclusivity, a place where I can come. The tables were set for all people to come to eat, to be present. And yet these tables are becoming a barrier. They're building barriers. They're basically saying, you cannot do this. That's what you can. You're not worth it. God is not going to listen to you. It doesn't matter. Let's invade this place. And Jesus has a problem with this. He has, he's so indignant that they're doing this because guess what? The temple was supposed to be the means to which people would get to know God. It was the means to which people would get to know his forgiveness, his compassion, his heart. And yet, what's happening here is that the tables are becoming barriers and all the systems that they had were just, were being an obstacle for people who were thirsting for God, not finding God because of the tables. And Jesus is indignant and he starts overturning tables because when a table becomes a barrier, it's better that it's overthrown, it's overturned because tables are to welcome you get what I'm saying, church? And Jesus is indignant, so he, he does what he does, and you and I need to understand this. No one, no one has the corner market on the blood of the Lamb. No church, no person, no denomination, no one has the corner market on the blood of the lamb. No one can say only through this is where you can find Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And when the church who is supposed to be the table that welcomes all people becomes the barrier where people who are thirsting for God cannot find God, Jesus has a problem with it. Jesus is calling us to be space creators. He's calling us to, to place a table where anyone and everyone can find it. And so notice this, this, this sentence that Jesus says, my house shall, shall be called a house of prayer, and, and it's a, a place for all peoples. It comes from Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, notice what it reads there in Isaiah 56. It reads, even those, and I want to give you the context of this verse. The context of this verse is foreigners and eunuchs. Eunuchs are, are, are eunuchs, and they were not considered unclean, clean people to walk into the temple. Foreigners, they were Gentiles, they were unclean. But Jesus brings this verse. Notice what he says, even those I will bring. He's talking about foreigners and eunuchs. 
even those I will bring to my holy mountain. What is this holy mountain? It's the temple, Zion. He says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And if somebody is going to be joyful, that means they're going to be blessed. They're going to be healed. They're going to be forgiven. They're going to be redeemed by the grace of God. And then it continues telling us their burnt offerings, their sacrifice will be what? Acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Church, what happens when our church becomes exclusive? What happens when Christianity becomes exclusive? There's not a nation that owns Jesus. There's not a denomination, not a church. People, churches, denominations are lifted up so we can be instruments of the grace of God. So we can create spaces, lift up tables that accept all people so anyone and everyone can find Jesus. It's so important that you and understand us because the people of God, they forgot this. In fact, the second part of the verse, the second part of the verse, it says, don't make my house a, a, a den, a, a, a robber's den. We find it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 7, 11, it says, has this house which has called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But notice the context of this in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 of Jeremiah, if you can, where it says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin. That's the context. They have forgotten their ways. The leadership... The leadership at the time where Jesus walks in are doing all these things. They were repeating the sins of the people of God when they went into exile. They forgot about the widow. They forgot about the poor. They forgot about the orphan. They forgot about those who were in need. Our God has never been an exclusive God. Our God has been wanting to reach any and everyone and bring them home. And we as churches, I don't know how many times, I've, I've been pastoring for 30 years, I've seen churches, and I've seen churches. I've seen churches that do not allow people to come in because they're too sinful. So what is the church for? I've seen people, I've seen churches that are welcoming and that have received and loved and cared for people and that people feel joyful and their children and the children after the children keep on coming because that's the place where they find freedom, they find compassion, they find love. And so you and I, we need to ask ourselves, are we building barriers or are we setting up tables for all people? You see, it is you and I, the church, God has chosen to reflect who he is to the people. And what's happening here in this moment is that what they're doing is they're, they're presenting a God who is like any other God of the Old Testament. He's needy. He's demanding. Not only that, 
He takes advantage of the worshiper. You cannot come in here because you're not good enough. You don't have enough. We don't care. Your lifestyle is too bad, so whatever. You can be lost. It doesn't matter. I remember I was sitting down with a gentleman who was telling me, Pastor, our church is the most conservative church in this area. And if people come in and they don't like it, they can leave. Barriers, not tables. And I just want to let you know that if you, in your experience as a person, have you ever found a church that has rejected you that way, has pushed you away, who has said you're not good for nothing? I want to let you know that was not God. God wants you close. He wants you near. He loves you. He cares for you. And we have enough people, enough people in this world have been hurt, so much hurt, that we have a whole section here in the United States that is called the unchurched. They're, they're called unchurched not because they don't come to church, not, not because they don't believe in God. They're called unchurched because they stopped coming to church. They just stopped. Because they were not finding what they were needing. I remember in the Old Testament, there's this passage, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. And it reads, Thus says the Lord God, Though I have removed them far away among the nations, though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was, in the, in the Hebrew really says, I will be a little sanctuary for them, a little while in the countries where they had gone. God even though they were unfaithful, God walks with them into the pagan countries in which they are going into. Not only he walks into them, he becomes a little sentry for them. You know where that happened? At the table. The table became the place of encounter with God when they were in exile. God broke every possible barrier so they could be redeemed, healed, blessed, transformed by His grace. And now years later, the table, the place of healing, the place of gathering, the place of resurrection has become a barrier. God is hurting. Jesus is weeping. How is it possible that the people that I call by my name are now doing this this heart of Jesus has always been that the sinner that the person who's seeking and thirsting for it can find him and so as a church people if we ever have a table like that, like that we need to overturn it we need to overthrow it the table is a place where everyone and anyone is welcome whatever your past is Whatever your actions has been this week, whatever your mistakes, your sin, whatever your pressures, whatever your struggles are, this is the place of gathering. This is the place of healing. This is the place of resurrection. He loves you. And he's going to fight for you. God shows up. And, and what you're hearing through all this is, is simply,
this is that God fights for his children to receive the gift that he has given for them. Even if he has to have a whip in his hand, even if he has to overthrow tables, even if he has to create chaos, he will break down churches in order for people to find him. Because the most important thing for Jesus is you. It's always been you. And it'll always be you. So come. Welcome to the table. Let's eat together.